Let's pray together. Father, we submit ourselves to you now and ask for your help, that you will give us ears to hear your word this morning. I pray for the one who came into this place discouraged, perhaps, that they might receive encouragement. For the one who came this morning tired, that they would be refreshed by the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. For the person who came weak and tired, that they would be given your strength today as we open the scriptures together. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. A few years back, the New York Times released an article by a psychology professor at Harvard on the effects of uncertainty. He cited a a Gallup well-being index, noting that Americans are smiling less and worrying more, that happiness is down, sadness is up, that we are getting less sleep, and that depression is on the rise. But the reason for those things, I think, is very curious. Uncertainty. The article goes on to discuss and talk about how most of us aren't losing sleep because we know that, for example, the Dow is going to fall a thousand points tomorrow. We're losing sleep because we don't know if it will or not. And that most Americans, generally speaking, are more uncomfortable about uncertainty than the things that actually make them uncertain in the first place. He, he concludes, quote, our national gloom is real enough But it's not a matter of insufficient funds. It's a matter of insufficient certainty. I don't know about you, but that idea really resonates with me. I just think about the variety of areas of our lives where uncertainty is present, right? We don't know how the economy is going to perform next year. We don't know if the doctor's office will call tomorrow morning and and deliver a devastating diagnosis that will alter the course of our lives forever. We don't know. We don't know how our child is going to do their first year in middle school or in high school, or maybe if you're a parent who just isn't out taking your kid to college. You You don't really know how they're going to adjust, not for sure. What about certainty as it relates to Christianity and the Christian life? I mean, I think it's an important question to ask, especially in a day when secularism and skepticism are on the rise. Is it really possible to know that what we believe isn't just wishful thinking? That the message of Christianity isn't more fable than fact? Think about it. How do you know that the gospel is an authentic message? How do you know? That Jesus actually came to the earth and lived a perfect life without sin. That he died, that he rose again. I mean, were you there? How do you know that heaven is a real place? I hope you're not staking your claim on the movie that came out a few years ago. I hope there's, there's something beyond that. How do you know that all of your present suffering isn't just the, the result of a bunch of molecules colliding together? no specific purpose or rhyme or reason. How do you know? I wonder how you'd respond to some of those questions if your, your friend or neighbor asked you this afternoon as you were grilling burgers. 
Is there a way to answer with certainty? This, friends, is the exact issue that the Apostle Peter is dealing with in the passage of Scripture that we come to today. So if you would, meet me in your Bibles, please. 2 Peter chapter 1. We are continuing in our end of summer series on the book of 2 Peter called Now and Later. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 21. Please, if you didn't bring a Bible or you forgot one or you don't have one, please grab one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, turn over to page 1018 uh, and, and follow along with us as we dive into the scriptures. 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 21. Let me read the, the entire text and, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper. Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths... When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. So as we dive into this passage, let me just set out a, a pretty simple roadmap for how we're going to get at this idea of, of Christian certainty. We're going to look this morning at what was seen, what was heard, and what was written. Okay, there's our roadmap. What was seen, what was heard, what was written. First, what was seen, and that is the apostles' eyewitness testimony to the life and ministry of Jesus. What was seen? Peter begins by appealing to the eyewitness accounts of the majesty of Christ. We see it in verse 16. Look at it again with me. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, at first it kind of sounds like Peter's arguing with the air. I mean, what would, what would prompt such a statement? Well, what's prompting it is that here we have a group of false teachers who are basically accusing him and the other apostles of preaching a fairy tale gospel. This is the stuff of legend, they're saying. It belongs in the same category as Spider-Man and the Easter Bunny. It's a myth. It's a, it's a fable. And they take particular aim, bringing into their crosshairs, the doctrine of the return of Jesus to the earth. This is the, the power and coming that Peter mentions in verse 16. And the reason is because it's very likely that these false teachers wanted nothing to do with the future judgment that is attached to the return of Jesus. Peter clues us into this later in, in chapter 2. He's saying that they, they were basically consumed with the sensuality and greed of the present. They didn't want to look to the future. And so they, they lay this accusation on Peter. And that implicates not only the return of Jesus, but actually the authenticity of their entire gospel. So Peter responds by saying, now hold on a minute. We are not making this stuff up from the creative imagination. We were actually there. 
we saw it. And this encouraging foundation of eyewitness testimony is littered all across the New Testament. I'll give you just a couple examples. Uh, John begins his first letter by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you. Luke is another example. At the onset of his gospel, says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken a compilation of a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, to write an orderly account, listen here, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Certainty. That is great news, isn't it? It's wonderfully reassuring to know that that the accounts and the claims of the Christian gospel are rooted in eyewitness testimony. It reminds me of uh, the young trial lawyer who was assigned a really difficult case. He was assigned to represent a man who'd been accused of a very serious crime that he did not commit. The man knew this. The young attorney knew this. The problem is that there were no eyewitnesses to corroborate the man's story. So this young attorney worked tirelessly. He tried every legal trick and loophole in the book, but, but without the presence of an eyewitness, it just the whole thing seemed like a lost cause. And then, suddenly, things changed when an eyewitness came forward. And then another, and then another. And almost in an instant, the case turned and went in favor of the innocent man, and he was acquitted of the crimes that they had accused him of. You know, just to make sure this doesn't happen in, in, uh, in stories and law and order and John Grisham novels, I did call up an attorney friend of mine this week and said, how important are eyewitnesses really to these cases? And he said, it makes all the difference. This is the power of eyewitness testimony. It builds certainty. And so we see from the onset of this passage that, that the message of the apostles, that Peter's message about the return of Jesus to the earth was not only good news, was reliable news. It was actually true. And as we think about this as, as modern contemporary readers of the Bible, one of the things this, this reminds us to do is to be on guard against those, quote, Christian teachings that are, in fact, following cleverly devised myths. There's no shortage of them. We know that, whether it's a, a Christian cult or the teachings of the prosperity gospel or models for works-based salvation, or whether it's it's maybe the more subtle self-teachings that we often convince ourselves of. As the old song says, prone to wander, Lord, I, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The things that we teach ourselves that are driven by our own agenda. The inability to kind of stay sharp as we hear the teaching of God's word. I see it every now and again, you know, we're nodding off or we're struggling to focus. And this passage is, I know that because I'm one of you. This passage, and we've got, well, let me just tell you, we've got among the best senior pastors that there is. And yet we're prone to wander. So what do we have to do? We've got to stay sharp. We've got to exercise some healthy skepticism every now and then. Like the Bereans in the book of Acts and Remembering the words of John Piper, I think they're helpful when he says, full-blooded Christian faith does not flourish in ignorance. We have to stay sharp. And then you've got uh, some of these mythological cultural narratives, right, that are out there kind of wooing us. I asked a group of friends and colleagues this week, what are some of those cultural myths that are, 
that are out there. And the one that immediately rose to the surface was the cultural myth that says, you know, you really deserve the good life. And so pursue comforts and pleasure at any cost. Now, it's not that hard work and enjoying your family and things like that are inherently wrong, but what it does mean is that this narrative doesn't possess or offer us the kind of certainty that Peter is talking about here in the scripture. There's, there, he's saying there's a more certain narrative to build your life on, and he's starting to substantiate this by referencing the eyewitnesses. But you can imagine the response of some of these false teachers, or even, or even us, if we're honest. Okay, Peter, you saw something. We get it. But what exactly did you see? I mean, can you give us an example I mean, how do we know that you've, you really understood what was actually happening? No, Peter goes on and continues his argument. The second layer is so helpful because he shows us that certainty is not only built on what was seen, it's also built on what was heard. That is the voice of God himself endorsing and affirming Jesus the Son. We had an eyewitness, and now, if you like, we have an ear witness. God's divine endorsement of Jesus the Son. Look back at it in verse 17. He says, When he received honor, meaning Jesus, and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So the example, the evidence that he puts forward about the reality of Jesus' second coming and the validity of the apostolic gospel is curious, the transfiguration. That's curious to me, right? I mean, why not choose one of the miracles of Jesus? Why not go with the resurrection? Why the transfiguration? There's a couple reasons, I think. And one is because the transfiguration was, was kind of a preview of sorts for the second coming. Luke's gospel account fills in more of the details. Listen as I read it. He says that the appearance of Jesus' face was altered, that his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Glory, that is, that is a big, big word. We need to be taken to the glory of Jesus, and the transfiguration does that for us. And, and as we keep reading in Luke's gospel account, we actually see perhaps the even bigger reason why he references the transfiguration. Not just because it was a preview of the glory and the majesty of Jesus, but listen to verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake and they saw his glory and the two men, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's, it's good that we're here. Let, let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. Now that is an interesting little detail, isn't it, that Luke gives us? Not knowing what he said. So Peter saw something, but he didn't understand it. You can imagine, right? I mean, have you ever been woken up out of a, a hard, heavy sleep, out of a dead nap, when your kids comes and kicks you? <laughs> what? What? Uh, what's, what's going on? John? James? Jesus is glowing. <laughs> Jesus is glowing. Uh, uh, let's put up some tents. Jesus, let's, let's just, everybody take a step back. Let's put up some tents. This is a good thing. 
He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't know what was going on. And so Peter's reference to the transfiguration isn't just because of what he saw. It's also because of what he heard. Because in hearing the voice of God, he was hearing the interpretation of what he was seeing. God speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And now, ringing through Peter's ears are the words of Psalm 2. Listen, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. He who sits in heaven laughs. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your, your heritage. Kiss the son, Psalm 2 tells us, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the transfiguration wasn't just a preview of the second coming. It was a full tilt affirmation and interpretation of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Think about it. God is fully affirming Jesus both in the present and the future. This guy, he's the, he's the one, the promised Savior King who has come, and he's the glorious judge who is sure to come again. It is no coincidence that every synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record the transfiguration immediately following two things. Number one, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Identity. Proposed identity. And number two, Jesus' own prediction of his burial, death, burial, and resurrection. Mission proposed. Immediately following that is the divine affirmation. And so you see the, the cloud of mystery that's surrounding this young carpenter from Nazareth is now being lifted. It is certified by the voice of God, a divine endorsement, if you will. Now, you know, and marketers of course, clued into this, that the right kind of endorsement makes all the difference. I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, all I wanted was a pair of Nike basketball shoes. And, and, and I was like three foot two, so it, it wasn't to make me jump higher, and I certainly wasn't concerned about whether Nike was actually the brand to protect my sensitive feet from plantar fasciitis. No, no. The reason I wanted a pair of Nike basketball shoes is because of this guy. Because I wanted to fly like Mike. And I figured, man, if, if Mike says they're good shoes, then they, they must be all right. The right kind of endorsement. Now, the wrong kind of endorsement does the other thing. I was watching TV the other evening, uh, and on popped a commercial for Infinity Automobiles. And the endorser? Steph Curry. <laughs> I never liked Infinities. <laughs> The right or the wrong endorsement really makes all the difference in the world. And in the case of Jesus, friends, in the case of the apostolic message, the promised return of Jesus, God speaks a powerful word of endorsement. And in hearing that word, we're now really clued in about the argument that Peter's making. What he's saying to us in this passage is that certainty for the Christian life comes from the certainty of God's word. Certainty, confidence 
for the Christian life, both today and tomorrow, comes from the certainty of God's own word. And that is a wonderful thought. The the Christian certainty isn't some well-wish. It's not built on a myth or a fairy tale or a fable. It is as sure as God's own word. It's also pretty reassuring uh, to me that Christian certainty is external in its nature. In other words, my confidence or certainty for the Christian life today and tomorrow isn't built on my mood, which changes like 20 times an hour some days. It's not dependent upon my success externally. It's not dependent even on my experience. There is something objective and external that gives us certainty for the Christian life. And that is the certainty of God's own word. We we, we ought to sleep better tonight knowing that. That certainty for today and tomorrow, certainty when you are facing the most uncertain of circumstances, when you're facing insurmountable suffering, when you limp in here on a Sunday morning feeling totally beat down by life, certainty for that life comes by the certainty of God's word. An author and theologian, Michael Horton, retells the story of the birth of his triplets. And if just having triplets isn't scary enough, he remembers that it was not a foregone conclusion, uh, especially for one of these little babies, that they would be born safely. There was concern there. All the wishful thinking in the world, even from certified medical professionals, could not alleviate the suspense for him. He could hope all that he wanted for a successful delivery, but ultimately he he didn't have any kind of certainty until he heard the words of the doctor in the delivery room. They're all alive. He says, quote, my confidence developed entirely on the words the doctor uttered. Similarly, the gospel is news because it reports a completed event Faith does not make something true, but embraces the truth. Certainty, friends, for the Christian life comes from the certainty of God's word. Now, maybe you'd say, all right, Chris, I'll get there with you. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll go with you this far. They saw it. They heard it. But I want to hear it for myself. So if you can reproduce the voice of God from heaven spoken from the majestic cloud, maybe I can get there. I'm listening. Let's have it. I think that's actually a fair point. And almost anticipating that same type of question, Peter stakes his final claim to Christian certainty, not only in what was seen, which is very compelling, not only in what was heard, which is even more compelling, but what was written. The Spirit-inspired Scripture, the written Word of God, Peter's final and most compelling word about certainty in the Christian life is the Bible. Look at verses 19 to 21 again. He says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Certainty, 
Absolute certainty for the Christian life comes from the certainty of God's word. And Peter offers up a couple of, I think, really helpful insights into this word. First is that we've got this idea of the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Or the NIV translates it, the word of the prophets made more certain. That's an interesting idea. What does he mean? Does he mean that somehow the word of the Old Testament was somehow deficient? And now in light of of experiences and events like the transfiguration, they're somehow improved? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Peter's saying. What he's saying here is that in light of the life and ministry of Jesus, the ancient word of the prophets, and really all of the Old Testament, is more fully realized. It's the unveiling mystery made known in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's both the continuity and the culmination of progressive revelation in the person of Christ, the living word, made known by the written word. I think Calvin is really helpful here. He says, the authority of the word of God is the same as it was in the beginning, and then given further confirmation by the advent of Christ. So hear the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The prophetic word more fully confirmed. Isaiah 53, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Friends, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Micah 5, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The prophetic word more fully confirmed. The second insight Peter gives us about the certainty of Scripture is actually its source. Origin. Verse 20, he tells us, knowing, first of all, of first things, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Because it was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful visual image, a picture of the origins of the Old Testament. And in fact, the entire Bible, by the way, we're going to hear later in, in, first, excuse me, in 2 Peter 3, where Peter uh, lumps in all of Paul's writings with the scriptures. So the entire Bible, we have the picture of God, the Holy Spirit, carrying along human authors to speak and record God's own word. The human authors, of course, retain all of their individual personalities and writing styles and personal backgrounds. They weren't robots, and yet they are propelled Actually, the word is where we get our word fairy. They are ferried along by the Holy Spirit. Outside of the mechanics of biblical inspiration, this has a whole lot to teach us about biblical interpretation. In other words, these prophets didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'm going to offer up a clever word of insight to the people of God. They weren't the origin of the word, and neither did they speak the inspired word. And then offer an uninspired kind of personal commentary about the word. No, the same God who gives the word assigns the right interpretation of that word. 
Now, if you think about it, this has massive implications on the other side of that interpretive coin, on the reader's side, on our side of the interpretive coin. Let's just take this example. You're reading a passage of scripture, you come up against a verse that rubs you the wrong way. And this, by the way, will happen if you're living the Christian life. And so you have a couple of choices. Choice number one, you can give way to the certainty of the word. Choice number two, you can attempt to take the certainty of the word and make it give way to you. You might even come and talk to one of your pastors about this challenging passage. And yet, when you get to the bottom of the truth, at the end of it, you're not willing to give way to the certain word. Here is what I hear from time to time. Well, pastor, I just have a different interpretation of that passage. What these verses tell us, friends, is that the true meaning of Scripture actually comes from God, which he gave to the authors, which are in turn given to us. And so if you just follow that chain backwards, the right interpretation is not a matter of personal opinion. It's not about what's best for me. And it's certainly not about conforming the interpretation into our selfish agenda. Right biblical interpretation is about getting to the meaning that God assigns to it. You might imagine with me a daughter and her boyfriend get permission somehow from the daughter's father to go out one school night and uh, to have a Coke. So they, they're excited about this and, and, and the one very clear word of instruction the father gives, is he says, of course, be careful and have fun. He says, you must be home by 10. You must be home by 10. Even writes it on a post-it note and, and slips it in her purse for her so she wouldn't forget it. So they make their way over to Stonebridge or the Phoenix or whatever it is that they're getting their Diet Coke. They're having a wonderful time, sparkling conversation, and all of a sudden, quarter to nine rolls around. Or quarter to ten. They gotta be home by ten. Quarter to ten. And all of a sudden, this young couple begins having difficulty interpreting the father's instructions. <laughs> what did he mean when he said, you must be home by ten? I mean, did he mean us specifically or just like people in general? And what exactly did he mean when he said you must be home by 10? I mean, who's home? My home or your home or maybe one of our friends' home? And after all, you know the old saying, home is where the heart is. And I guess to take it one step further, he said you must be home by 10. But he really didn't clarify whether it's Eastern Standard Time or, or Central Time. In fact, you know, if you think about it, in Hawaii, it's only quarter of seven. And yet, how often do we approach the scriptures in this way? Friends, may we never cloud the clarity of God's word with sloppy or lazy or selfish interpretation. That also means, by the way, that anybody who stands up in any context at this church to teach the Bible is in need of your prayers. Not only your sharp awareness, but your prayers Our goal is not to get up here and to preach myths and fables and personal opinion peppered with a little Bible. Our goal is not to read a passage of scripture and pick out the verse that maybe has emotional meaning to us and then teach that verse and not actually the meaning that God intended. And that's hard work. It's good work. It's the best work 
but we covet your prayers, asking God to help the teachers and preachers of this congregation to stay on the line, so to speak, because there's a lot at stake. We shouldn't take God's word casually because it builds our certainty, doesn't it? And rather than take it casually or twist its meaning, what should we ought to do? Well, verse 19 tells us, Peter says, do well to pay attention to it. As a lamp, I love this, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. Another reference to the return of Jesus. In other words, in the days between, the days we're living in right now, if you want certainty, pick up your Bible. Pick up your Bible. Because certainty for the Christian life comes from the certainty of God's word. You know, in May of this year, Gallup released a poll that showed a record, and it's a trajectory, a record 26% of Americans now believe that the Bible is simply a book of fables, legends, and moral precepts. You add that to an even higher percentage that does not account the Bible as God's own word. And it puts us in a position of great uncertainty. Because if that's true, then certainty for the Christian life is really impossible. Right? Because true certainty can't come from our ever-changing emotions. We can barely predict how we're going to feel from one day to the next, let alone answer the big questions of life. Certainty can't come from our unpredictable experiences or circumstances. We know this. And so there's got to be a, a firmer foundation and God, friends, has richly provided that in the scripture. As the old song tells us, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. A word built on the, the testimony of the apostles, eyewitnesses, the divine confirmation of Christ the Son, and yes, the written word of God, the scriptures. So if you're here this morning and still kind of weighing out the claims of Christianity, you say, listen, I'm, I, I'm not sure I've been there, but this has been a, at least an interesting argument. Um, I hope you've been encouraged by that today. And of course, I want you to know that, that Christianity is not simply be about an assent to the facts. It's about taking hold of that truth by faith. We've heard that throughout the message. And, and if you've got more questions about what that means to marry all of this together and to connect the dots about what it means to put your faith in Jesus and to follow him. We're going to have some people up here afterwards that would love to chat with you about that. Uh, you can also uh, fill out a connect card even now and drop it in a basket. We'd love to, love to connect with you on that. If you're here uh, this morning as a believer, I hope that you are refreshed and encouraged by the fact that God has provided us certainty as his children. And that certainty translates into so many areas of life. So when you find yourself this week uncertain about your identity, uncertain about your security, uncertain about how this thing will turn out or how that thing will turn out, uncertainty about how to deal with that, that coworker, uncertainty about how to work through this issue with your teenager, uncertainty about what the future holds for your family, pick up your Bible. And get a certain word. Savor that word. See the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures. The word incarnate. Because certainty for the Christian life comes from the certainty of God's word. With that, let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are. 
that you have spoken clearly, sufficiently, authoritatively in and by the scriptures. That the word is not some haphazard endeavor. It is inspired by you, that you are the author, that you have worked in cooperation with human authors to deliver everything we need for life and godliness. And that builds in us a wonderful certainty. And so I pray that the people of God would leave this morning more certain than ever before, more certain about your love for them, more certain about the reality of the second coming, the need to have an advocate at the end of all days at the final judgment, certainty about the way in which we're to love and care for one another and many, many other expressions of obedience to you. Help us to grow in these things and to stand upon the wonderful promises that you give us, the certain promises of your word. For these things we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.